So I'm glad this morning to be able to uh, bring God's word to you, to be able to proclaim this uh, very verbose section of Job, these uh, six chapters here, before we hear from God. Um, so, uh, not this past Friday, but the Friday before, uh, I was taking Kit to school. Now, what's interesting about Fridays is that's the only day that I both take Kit to school and pick her up. That's the only day of the week that that happens. Even so, every day that uh, I get ready to go drop her off, she asks, who's going to pick me up today? It's like every day, who's going to pick me up? And that's, a, that's, that's fine. You know, she just wants to know. She doesn't want any ambiguity in your life. That's fine. And so I tell her every day, you know, uh, mom's going to pick you up. Or then, you know, Friday's like, well, it's Friday, so I'm going to pick you up. And on this particular Friday, she said, no, mom's going to pick me up. And I was like, I was thinking like, well, I haven't talked to Paige about that, but I'm pretty sure. No, no, I, kid, I'm not certain, but I, no, I'm going to pick you up today. And she's like, no, mom's going to pick me up, um, which is a delight, by the way. Like, it's just such a children thing to do, right, to ask questions that they then correct you on the answer of. But anyway, uh, so she's like, no, no, mom's going to take me. Mom's going to pick me up. And so we go through this for way too long, and I just kind of eventually say, okay, it's okay if you're wrong, but I just need you to know that you're going to be wrong because I don't want you to be mad at me when I pick you up. And I was like, are you going to be mad at me when I pick you up? And she said, yes. And I said, I hope not. And that was the end of that. Um, and so I dropped her off at school, and then I went to pick her up. And I thought she is going to blow up when, I, when she sees me. So she sees me coming down the hall, and like, to my surprise, she opens up her arms, and she's like, Mom! And then starts running to me. Um, so there's just something about youth that just gives us an unearned confidence, right? Uh, there's, there's the confidence that the young have This just doesn't always correlate to correctness, right? We're going to see a, uh, a, a young man who appears in this story of Job, who has kind of been in the shadows. We haven't even smelled him this far. Uh, but we, we've heard nothing about him, we've seen nothing about him, but he just appears out of nowhere um, as, as this young, energetic, um, somewhat aggressive uh, figure, and surprisingly gives the best, the, the still incomplete, the best account of suffering that we've seen thus far in the book of Job. So, so far... In the book of Job, we have seen what happened to Job, the immense suffering that he experienced. And then his friends come to comfort him. And what begins as this uh, you know, comforting experience with friends turns into a passionate debate where they just end up getting locked in completely different positions. Job, having experienced all of this suffering and having no reason to think that God would do it to him, becomes convinced that God has acted in a very personal, aggressive, hateful way towards Job, that he despises Job, and that he's acting against justice. Job's friends, for their part, are convinced that Job is lying and that he has committed some kind of sin. I mean, he has to, right? People don't suffer as much as Job in the minds of Job's friends, if they haven't sinned, right? So like Thoreau said that like some circumstantial evidence is overwhelming like a trout in the milk, right? And so for Job's friends, his suffering is the trout in the milk. 
it is clear evidence that Job has sinned. And so they go and go and go. They have all kinds of debates. And then eventually it peters out there at the end. And Job has the last words. 32.1 says, so these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They come to the conclusion, we are not going to make any headway with this guy. And Job, for his part, has become convinced that he is righteous in his own eyes and that he is in the right. So, thankfully, God gives them a self-righteous 20-something to fix all of these issues, right? Um, We don't really know how old Elihu is, but he steps into this argument uh, as a very young and abrasive character. We'll we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But he steps into this and gives an alternate account for why Job, as a righteous person, might suffer. So what we're going to do this morning is to say two things about this young man named Elihu. We're going to say two things about him and ask two questions about him. First, we're going to uh, look at Elihu's identity and Elihu's message. Then we're going to ask, is Elihu right? And is Elihu, what he's saying, even useful? Right. So Elihu's identity, we'll start there. The way I would summarize Elihu, the person of Elihu in the book of Job, is that he is young, he is angry, and he is presumptuous. Young, angry, presumptuous, Y-A-P, he is a little yap, um, which is a word that Webster actually defines as shrill, insistent talk, which is, that is Elihu. So he is young, first of all. We can see in verse 4, verse 4, chapter 32, says, now Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he. So he is the young person in this group. He's much younger than all of the people around him. But why exactly was he afraid to speak? Basically for three reasons. First is for custom. Just in this time, it was, it was respectful for a, a younger person to wait their turn, right? To wait for uh, the words of all these older and presumably wiser people to have their peace before they, they speak. It, it's letting experience come before youth, right? And so by this custom, he waits to speak. But also he says that he was intimidated in verse 6. He says that, I am young in years and you were aged and therefore I was timid and afraid to declare my opinion to you. So he's standing around all of these older people, and he's afraid to speak up because they are older and, again, presumably more wise than him. But he also trusted them to eventually hit the nail on the head, right? In verse 7, he said, I said, let days speak, and many years teach wisdom. And he, he waits and waits for that to happen, and it doesn't come, right? He, he assumes since they are older, then they must be wiser, and so he has a degree of trust in them. So because of, because of custom of the time, because of, he was intimidated, and because of trust that he has in these older people, he does not speak so far. And I think in this, Elihu is pretty easy to relate to, especially for any of us who are younger or you know, just can really clearly remember younger times in our life, right? Like, like a, a new mom may feel nervous around older mothers, you know, as, uh, with, with older kids and more kids. Um, especially with the kids have, like, never used a whiny voice or never, uh, um, never declined any food, right? 
Uh, Or, you know, maybe a student who's moving up into a newer school, or maybe our students moving up from TC Kids, TC Students. You may feel nervous around these uh, older people around you. That's how Elihu felt. He was timid, nervous, and afraid to speak. But Elihu wasn't just young. He was also angry. He was very angry, in fact. Um, And in verses uh, 1 through 5 of chapter 32, it uses the word anger four times, right? It's trying to make the very clear point that Elihu is angry, that he's angry with these people. So he's angry first at Job. Verse 2 says, Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzite, the family of Ram, burned with anger. He burned with anger at Job because he justified himself rather than God. Essentially, Elihu looked at what Job was saying, that I am right in this. I have not done anything worth being punished to this extent. He's basically, in Elihu's mind, exalting himself and his righteousness above God. He's saying, not only am I right, but God is wicked for what he is doing. And Elihu is angry about this. He's not angry because he thinks Job is lying. He is angry because he's impugning the righteousness of God. That's why Elihu is angry at Job. Elihu's also angry at Job's friends, though. Verse 3, it says, He burned with anger also at Job's three friends because they had found no answer, although they declared Job to be in the, in the wrong. Basically, he thinks that they have bitten off something that they can't chew. They've tried to declare, Job, you're not in the wrong, for, or you're not in the right for the way you're talking about God. And they could not prove it. And so he's frustrated, he's angry at them. Ultimately, I think he's just disillusioned and disappointed with the, what he presumed to be the wisdom and, uh, of the older people around him. Verse 11, it says, Behold, I waited for your words. I listened for your wise sayings while you searched out what to say. I gave you my attention. And behold, there was none among you who refuted Job or who answered his words. He was disappointed and frustrated at these people around him. He had become disillusioned, right? Uh, and it's, it's a common experience of youth, right? You, you, you get into a new job out of college, and you're excited to work with all of these people around you that have been doing it for years and years and years, and then somewhere about eight or nine months in, you're like, oh, no, I think maybe no one knows what they're talking about, right? And so that's the experience that Elihu has here, where he's looking around and he's saying, these guys are supposed to be so wise, but they have not said anything wise so far. So he's angry. But he's also, we can, again, we can identify with him still to this point, but he is also quite presumptuous. He's quite presumptuous, presuming of his own rightness. So in, in chapter 33, verses 6 through 7, he says, he's speaking to Job here. Behold, I am toward God as you are. I, too, was pinched off from a piece of clay. Behold, no fear of me need terrify you. My pressure will not be heavy upon you. He thinks that he needs to reassure Job, like, hey, you don't have to be afraid of me. Just I want you to know I'm a human just like you. Right? Could you imagine someone like a new hire at work coming in and just telling everyone, hey, I just want you all to know I'm about to do a really good job at this, but... 
I want you to understand I'm a human just like you. You don't have to worry. So he tells Job, you don't have to be afraid of me, which is ironic considering that he was just afraid of them. But he also, more significantly, in verse 36, or chapter 36, and uh, in verses 3 and 4, he says, I will get my knowledge from afar and describe righteousness to my maker. Verse 4, for truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. Right? So he's, he's straight up saying, everything that I'm saying is absolutely perfect and pristine. And I have nothing in what I'm saying that's false or could be wrong. I am speaking six chapters here and not a word of it is anything but correct. Uh, so he is young, he is angry, and he is presumptuous. The best way that I would know how to, the best person, kind of person I could pair Elihu would be, it would be like a 24-year-old cage stage Calvinist. That's the best description that I can give. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Cage Stage Calvinist refers to a comic that was, uh, was written a few years ago where you, you have this uh, recent convert, you know, if you can use this kind of words, to Calvinism, who becomes very angry and frustrated at all of the people around them. It's a phenomenon you see a lot where someone, they learn some new doctrine, they learn some new truth, and they get really mad at all the people around them, like, hey, how, how have you not been telling me this all of this time, right? And they become very uh, disillusioned with the people that they thought were, were wise. And so that's kind of how Elihu is acting here. He's acting young, angry, and presumptuous towards these people. Yet even so, even so, God uses Elihu to make, we would say, the best case for suffering so far. Elihu's identity might be one who is young, angry, and presumptuous, but he does get some things right. So let's look now at Elihu's message. Elihu's message. So Elihu's basic message, we're going to unpack this more. Elihu's basic message is this. God uses suffering to purify the righteous. God uses suffering to purify the righteous. We need to understand that this idea, God uses suffering to purify the righteous, is different from what both Job and Job's friends have said so far. This is new. It's distinct. Um, so Job and Job's friends have been locked in a battle with something called the retribution principle. This is something that Matthew has mentioned in these past few weeks. But basically the idea of the retribution principle is pretty simple. It's the idea of you get what you give. You reap what you sow. That if you are wicked, you will be punished. If you are righteous, you will be rewarded. And basically, the problem with, with what they're doing here is they apply that principle to everything, to every interaction, every action that a person has in the world, that there is some kind of almost mathematical uh, response from God in giving out punishment or giving out reward based on how wicked or how righteous they are. Job's friends have been convinced that Job has sinned because he has been, in their minds, punished, right? That what he is undergoing is punishment from God for wicked actions. 
Job is frustrated because he believes that since he has been righteous, he should receive reward from God. So this has been at the heart of how they've come to this absolute impasse. They can't get past each other. They're still so fixed on this idea of the retribution principle. One of the things that Elihu does that's this, in the background of his argument is moving beyond understanding suffering only in terms of punishment for the wicked. He's moving beyond this idea that all suffering is some kind of punishment for some kind of sin. He's moving beyond that to something different, to an idea that lets him say, the righteous can suffer. That the righteous can suffer. Let's look at Elihu's prognosis, what he's saying. He's saying basically that God uses suffering for purification of the righteous. In other words, that God is using suffering to make a righteous person better, to grow a righteous person and make them more holy. So let's look at two passages uh, where he says this. So in, in, ver- in chapter 33, we can see beginning in verse 12, going through verse 20, he gives an example of this. Speaking to Job again here. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? For God speaks in one way, and in two, though, God, though man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of night, when deep slumber falls on men while they slumber on their beds... Then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man. He keeps back his soul from the pit, his life from perishing by the sword. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones so that his life loathes bread and his appetite, the choicest food. So that's like most of Job, pretty dense, but here's the essence of what Elihu is saying. Just as God uses dreams to warn people, God uses suffering to warn people. In other words, he's saying that God uses suffering as an occasion for warning. It's a tool of communication to redirect people from the path that they're on to a better path. So in that, he's saying that you might not have committed sin, but God might use suffering to prevent that from happening in some kind of way. It's a tool of communication to redirect a person from the path they're on to a path uh, of greater righteousness. Right? So, so God can use, in, in Elihu's mind, suffering as a tool for communication in warning specifically. The other way, you might say, is we find in chapter 36, verses 5 through 12. Chapter 36, verses 5 through 12. He describes how God might use suffering to lead a person to repentance for sin that they have already committed or are continuing to commit. 36, verse 5. Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. He is mighty in strength of understanding. He does not keep the wicked alive, but gives the afflicted their rights. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but with kings on the throne, he sets them forever, and they are exalted. So in other words, 
God sees righteousness in a person, so he exalts that person to be a king, right? And that, that's an example of what we might say the retribution principle, right? That he's rewarding the righteous. So he sets them on the throne and they are forever exalted. Verse 8 And if they are bound in chains and caught in the cords of affliction, then he declares to them their work and their transgressions that they are behaving arrogantly. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. But if they do not listen, they perish by the sword and die without knowledge. So, Again, there, Job is not saying that this person is fundamentally wicked, but is righteous and, and, and God is using suffering in some way to call him to repentance for something down the road, right? That he's going to come into some conflict down the road, and rather than him, verse 12, perishing by the sword and dying without knowledge, that he could correct their paths and lead them on the right path. In other words, God is using suffering to bring about repentance, the overall idea that Elihu is trying to get across is that God uses suffering to, uh, to refine a person, to burn away the dross in a person's life, to make them more righteous. Not, again, to punish, not to hurt, not to inflict, but to restore and increase. So, as Piper said, Elihu does not picture God as an angry judge, but as a redeemer, a savior, a rescuer, a doctor. The pain he causes is like the surgeon's knife, not the executioner's whip. The idea is that God is trying to bring about greater righteousness and growth in a person rather than to inflict them for something that they have done. That's Elihu's prognosis of what's going on here in Job's life, that, that God is using this suffering uh, to bring about righteousness. Elihu's prescription for Job is humility. Humility. So in, in chapter 37, as he is finally winding down, um, chapter 37, verse 10, he says, For by the breath of God ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast, he loads the thick cloud with moisture, and the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. In other words, Elihu is saying, God controls nature. He directs clouds, he directs storms, he directs uh, even the ice that settles on the earth. He does it to, uh, to take care of his world. He does it to bring, he says, some kind of correction. What are, the idea is that God uses nature for his purposes. Therefore, God can use suffering for his purposes. And so... In verse uh, 14 and 15, he says, Hear this, O Job. Stop and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know how God lays his commands upon them and causes the lightning of his cloud to shine? And then we can skip down to, uh, to verse 23 here. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. 
Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in his own conceit, or in their own conceit. So Job here, or Elihu is saying to Job, look around at nature. God uses nature for his purposes. If you can't figure out how God makes the lightning to strike where he wants it to, if you can't figure out how he makes the clouds to be where he wants them to be, then you probably can't figure out exactly what God is doing with suffering. Your best bet is to not be wise in your own conceit, but instead to be humble, to be humble before God in the act or in, in the uh, event of your suffering, to humble yourself before that and to receive it from God. So we see here, Elihu's basic message is this. God uses suffering to purify the righteous. The proper response from the righteous is to accept it in humility so that they may grow. That's Elihu's basic position. Again, that's different from what Job and his, his friends have been saying so far. But here's the key question. Is Elihu right? Is he correct? Has he spoken accurately? Should we take what he says as gospel truth or something else? Uh, so y'all have known me for a while, and so you know that answering this question is not going to be easy or simple. Um, but I'm going to do our, our best with this. So um, there are two reasons why answering this question, is Elihu right, is difficult. The first is because of what God says, or uh, we might say rather he doesn't say. Right? So when you, you get to the end of the book of Job, and uh, chapter 42, verse 7, he speaks about Job's friends. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So he condemns Job's friends. That's pretty simple. He also speaks pretty clearly about Job in uh, chapter 38, uh, verse 2. He says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, right? So he, he's saying that to Job, that you're darkening counsel without knowledge. That's not something you want said about all of the things you've been saying, right? So those of you, some of you are students in here, you don't want to turn in a paper to your professor and then to write on the top of the page, you have darkened counsel without knowledge, right? That's a pretty clear indication that you've goofed, right? And so Job and his friends have both messed up and they've been condemned by God. Some people have taken that to say, well, if God condemns Job and his friends and he says nothing about Elihu, then we should just take Elihu as being in the right, right? Okay, that makes some sense, but there is a problem with that, um, which is namely that God also doesn't say anything about Job's wife, and we certainly wouldn't want to say that we should curse God and die, right? So um, we probably can't take that as the way of determining whether someone is in the right or wrong. So God doesn't say anything either way about Elihu to give us an idea of whether he's in the right or wrong. Also, the church, sometimes we, we have these kind of interpretive problems. We can find out what others have said throughout history and what others are saying today about these passages to figure out, you know, to get some, some more insight. 
But what the church has said about Job is absolutely, or Elihu is absolutely all over the place. They have interpreted all kinds of different ways. So, for instance, um, my favorite is that uh, Calvin, he, he really uh, interprets Job in a good light. He appreciates, or Elihu in a good light, really appreciates what he's saying. And then Luther calls him a useless windbag, right? And you see similar things going on with all kinds of other interpreters. Some people say that God agrees with Elihu. Some people say that God contradicts Elihu. Some people say that uh, Elihu is a, is a precursor to what God says. Some people say that he's an anti-climax. Some people have even said that he's like a, a comedic relief for the book of Job. So James, Matthew, there you go. This, this is the funny part of Job. Um, I don't know if y'all noticed. I didn't, but... Um, here we, we have apparently the comedic figure. Um, I say all that to say that there's no clear way that the church has interpreted Elihu. Um, so I want you to understand and know that. The reason for that, I think, is, is a few. I think first is that Elihu is just, he's not likable. I mean, he's not. I mean, and of course, that shouldn't be a reason for determining whether someone is, is in the right or someone is in the wrong. But let's be honest, when someone is very difficult to get along with, it's also very difficult to take what they say is, is true, right? But he's not likable. Um, he also, he sounds a lot like Job's friends, to be honest with you. Uh, a lot of times he sounds like he's getting very close to just saying the same thing that the friends who've come before him have said and saying it again. Um, but I think the biggest reason is we have a tendency when we come to the Bible to try to put, especially when we're coming to a section that has kind of narrative elements to it, like story elements, we want to put everybody into a good guy or bad guy camp, right? It's like um, a kid asks me all the time about like characters in a story. It's like, is that a good guy or is that a bad guy? Like she's, she's got to know like the creators of the story sat down before they, they started writing, they took a sheet of paper and they drew a line down the middle and they wrote down every character under the good column or the bad column, right? And a lot of times we want to interpret scripture that way too. And we take all of the things that the good guy has said and we say all of that stuff is right and all the things that the bad guy said, that's wrong. Elihu defies that. Because what, some of what he says is, is supported by Scripture. Even the main argument that he makes, we'll talk about, is supported by Scripture. But some of the th- there's, there's some problems with what he says, too. So what we're going to do is talk about two ways, two things that I think Elihu got right. And one thing, one important thing, that Elihu got wrong. Here's what Elihu got right, I think. Number one, the Job's account of suffering is insufficient. Job's account of suffering is insufficient. He is very clear in the way that he speaks to Job in saying that, number one, God does not hate you. God does not hate you. As you got further into the book of Job, the the more you go, the the more bold Job got in in saying that, that God personally hates him that he despises and loathes him. And that's an easy place to get in the midst of suffering. To be in the midst of suffering and to say, God must hate me to allow me to go through this. Elihu looks at Job and he says, God does not hate you. Rather, this is an act of mercy. So he's right in saying uh, that God does not hate Job. And he's also right in saying that God is just. Job had, at at the point that he gets pretty much attributed uh, injustice to God. 
and say that he was not doling out things as he should, that he wasn't acting in righteousness. Elihu says, no, that God is just. He's the only one who can be just. He's the only one with the knowledge, the power, the authority to be just. And God is just in his, not just in his dealings with you, but in his dealings with everyone. That your experience of suffering does not make God unjust. So he's, he's right in that. Elihu is also right to say that Job's friend's account of suffering is insufficient. That Job's friend's account of suffering is insufficient. In other words, that God is not limited to this mathematical use of the retribution principle and doling out suffering. That God is not limited to only giving uh, uh, punishment to wicked people in these very specific ways, only giving suffering to wicked people, and only giving uh, a reward to righteous people. That it's more complicated than that. In other words, that, that God is not just karma with a face, right? That he is acting personally in the world, that he has purposes that go beyond the retribution principle for suffering. Those, I think, are the things that Elihu gets right, that he's correct in. Elihu, though, I think gets one important thing wrong. Let's summarize what what Elihu has said again. Basically, that God is using the suffering of Job to purify and refine him. Here's the thing. Is that what is happening to Job? No, it's not, clo- it's not even close to being close, right? Let's, let's recall what happened. Again, Job is suffering because God uh, allowed it to happen to uh, show Job's uh, obedience to him, to show his, his worship of him uh, going beyond just the material benefits that he gets from God. That is not close to what Elihu is saying is happening. So he develops this this elaborate system of of God, you know, uh, um, using suffering to purify the righteous, which I think he's correct in, but then applies it to Job, and he's wrong. He's wrong. Again, we, we are 0 for 3 at this point at guessing why Job is suffering. He gets it wrong. He is not close to reality. So that raises the last question that I want to ask. Is Elihu useful? Is he useful? Because I I feel like we were were working with something for a little bit there, right? You know, we we were seeing how God might use uh, suffering for a righteous person, and I feel like I slammed the brakes on that really quick there at the end, right? With the idea that Elihu was wrong. I think there are some ways that we can use Elihu. I think there are some ways that he is useful. So just to look at his, his identity and, and how he acts versus the, the relative wisdom compared to the other people uh, in the story, I think we can say this. Even the young, angry, and presumptuous can be right. Even the young, angry, and presumptuous can be right. That just because Elihu is angry and he's frustrated and he, he pops up out of, of nowhere um, doesn't mean that he is wrong about everything he says. He gets a lot more right than the people who have come before him. In the same way, we would be remiss if we dismissed everyone just because they were frustrating in the way that they present things, right? Um, in other words, like, Cage stagers 
we need you, right? God can use you. I don't want you to be a cage stager. I'm going to be clear about that. Uh, it's not, I don't think, a point of spiritual maturity. But God can and often does use the zeal of people like that to speak to those who have become entrenched in our ways of thinking, just like Job uh, and his friends were entrenched in this idea of the retribution principle. Uh, Elihu here speaks a word of wisdom and expands that idea. So I think we need to remember that even the young, angry, presumptuous can be right. The second thing is that God really can use suffering to wake us and warn us. That God can use suffering to wake us and warn us. So Hebrews chapter 12 presents this, probably the best we could find in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12. Um, You could turn there if you'd like. We'll probably be there the rest of our time. Hebrews chapter 12. So we see, and the writer of Hebrews is talking about how God uses suffering, and he shows us that God repurposes suffering for increasing holiness, right? So in verses 9 through 10. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and lived? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. So suffering is not easy, it's not pleasant, but We also see in Hebrews uh, chapter 12 that it is purposeful in in verse 11. For the moment, uh, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So, in other words, suffering is painful, suffering is not pleasant, but God uses it for the purposes of righteousness. One thing I would want you to consider... One thing I want you to think about, understand, is that God can, frequently will, use suffering in your life to accomplish things that he can't by any other means. That the pursuit of the Christian life is not equal to the pursuit of pleasure. That there are some times where suffering does come for the purpose of growth. I am not asking you to... Uh, be enthralled with that. I am not asking you to, uh, to enjoy the act of suffering itself, but rather to be open to the idea that God uses it to accomplish things in you that cannot happen by any other means. Suffering is not good, it is not painful, but it is purposeful. Last thing uh, that I think we can see, that we can see through Elihu, is that God communicates through suffering, both ours and his. And this one is not fun, but important. We have to hear both sides of this to really receive it. God communicates through suffering, both ours and his. Hebrews 12, 7, it says, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So in other words, 
Suffering is painful, but as God, and assuming that God is using it for greater purposes than the affliction of, of punishment, right? Like, like I like you saying, he is communicating that we are his children and that we are his and that we are truly his. And in that act of suffering, there may be intense moments of pain and frustration and confusing, uh, confusing circumstances, but please don't forget that God can and does use that act of suffering to remind you that you are his beloved child. God communicates through our suffering. He does. But God communicates most clearly not through our suffering, but through his. Romans 5 Verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater communication from God, no clearer mark of his love than the pain that he endured on our behalf. His suffering in Christ is the greatest demarcation of his love. His suffering in Christ is what brings us to him, is what allows us to share in the eternal glories that we can have in him. God's suffering is the greatest point of communication to show us that we are his and the links that he will go to purchase us. In God's pain and suffering, we see the pain and suffering that we could have and should have endured that he took in our place. And so in it, we see great act of self-sacrificial love and the love that he has for us to bring us to him and to make us his. Let me pray for us.